0: There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal.
1: Welcome to No Mere Mortals Cover-to-Cover Series. The Cover to Cover series is a chronological journey through the moments in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation centered on the main character of Jesus Christ. In 2020, the Lord directed the start of the Cover to Cover series that originally began as weekly installments for Sunday morning youth teachings at a local church. In 2023, the Cover to Cover series will move to being a podcast series and Lord willing will continue to be weekly installments.
0: God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time in your word. And Father, I just pray uh, that as much fun as, as we, we had with family and getting together and looking at your amazing Resurrection Sunday last week, that Lord, that again, that, that would have propelled us this last week to be totally focused on you. And as we come here this moment, this, month, this Sunday, we wouldn't allow ourselves to be distracted by anything, but in fact, that we would just, uh, just marvel the fact that we get to be in your presence, experience you by your spirit through your word. Father, have Your way this morning and make us more like You in Son's name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So again, as we've been making our way through, we we were last week in Exodus chapter twenty three. Uh, we've been at the tail end as chapter twenty three kind of uh, wraps up this thing called the Book of the Covenant. Again, that's Exodus twenty eighteen to twenty three nineteen. And what we really saw, again, is the purpose of that book of the covenant is to apply in real life situations the principles laid out in the Ten Commandments. And again, I cannot stress this enough because we're going to be spending time later as we go through God's laws, is that the point of all of this, the Ten Commandments, the book of the covenant, and later as we get into the book of Leviticus, is not performance God is not giving you a list of do's and don'ts to earn his favor or to make him like you. God loves you. He proved that by the cross and empty grave. What happens is when we perform these laws, that when we adhere to these laws, when we apply these laws, it demonstrates a true belief in the name of the Lord and his completed restitution for his children. Again, that is why Jesus wanted to make it so clear as he did in Matthew chapter 5.17 where he says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. Because again, the law, the prophets, all of it is God's nature given in an imperative form and Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of that. Again, obeying God's word is not performing rituals to make God love you. He has proven that by the cross of Calvary. What obeying God's word means is that in every aspect of our life, day by day, we are putting on his character and becoming more and more like him. To be Jesus in your world that like us so desperately need to see him. They need more Jesus as we do. Last week, we just got through those two verses, Exodus chapter 23, uh, 20 and 21, where it says, Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way. And to bring you into a place which I have prepared, beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Now just real quick, again, last week what we saw is that when you see Yahweh, as he appeared to Abraham, we saw as he appeared to Jacob and even to Samuel, is that when you see this appearance of Yahweh, you're seeing that the word of the Lord is Yahweh in an anthropomorphic form. Again, it is, it is he's taking on a human likeness for us to be able to interact with God. That is why when you see that, you understand what John really meant when he started off his gospel. When he says in John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, In the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And in that same chapter, verse 14, John chapter 1, 14, it says that this word, this word that you've seen be Yahweh to Abraham, Jacob, Samuel, and John starts off this go- gospel saying that word is God. It, he, he is the creator. And in John chapter 1 verse 14 referring to this word says, And the word became flesh and dwelt, dwelt among us as we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And to remember where we are in Exodus chapter 23 as we move through is they're out there at Mount Sinai. The same mountain where the burning bush was has now gone from the burning bush to the burning mountain, the, the bush that did not burn up as it was. in that Abraham, or not Abraham, Moses interacted with Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, Elohim, through that bush. Now the, God has done that to the entire mountain for the nation of Israel. And again, The truth is, is, as we've been teaching you guys this, this is not even a new concept. What we're talking about as we talk about this plurality of God, it's not even something new. It's not like this is some newfangled idea that we're trying to shoehorn in because we want to try and make Jesus out to be something that he wasn't. Quite the opposite. I I wouldn't need you guys to understand, it's quite the opposite. In fact, up to about a hundred years after Jesus walked this earth, rabbis of the day were teaching in Jewish circles that there was a plurality to God. There, there was these two Yahwehs. They, they, they couldn't, as they went through scripture, they're like, there's these weird things that happen. Well, you're gonna see uh, God talking to God, referring to himself in the third person, and they didn't know what to do with that, and so they're teaching that, yeah, there's one God, but there clearly appears to be a plurality to him and we understood as we looked last week at that the death and resurrection of Jesus is that is why you understand now when Jesus stood before them and said i am that second yahweh that you teach about that they went wait you're a man trying to make yourself equal with god and he's saying this is not a new concept for you you may not like it you don't like the package it's coming but he declared himself to be just that and that is why they crucified him that's why he asked for what good deed do you you seek to kill me? Not, not a good deed. You being a man, you want to make yourself equal with God. And as we see right here, as we read in Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 and 21, it speaks of this angel. It is that anthropomorphic Yahweh standing before men. And it says that his name, Yahweh saying this, of this angel, my name is in him. And that is again, because yes, the very name of God in Jesus is what? Yahweh saves. Yeshua is Yahweh saves. Verse 22, it says, but if you indeed obeyed his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the, uh, and bring you into the Ammonites, the Hittites, the Pezzarites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. This, this list should, again, it, it should kind of invoke something. In fact, even there, as he's talking, God is saying uh, that this angel, Yahweh, Jesus, he's going to go before you. He's going to be the one who brings you victory. And it's very much an echo or call back to even as he was talking to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 where he said, I will curse those who curse you and bless those who bless you. And as he's bringing into that land, Genesis chapter 15, where it says that Abraham believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness, you see a very similar list show up, and we've talked about this before, and it even echoes back to the days of Noah. These lists, when you see them, they, they vary, and you sometimes, okay, what is the connective here? It's what all of these lists are, are circling around and getting our, our our mentality around as he spoke about the Amorites in chapter 15 saying that their sin had not yet, it was not yet complete, it was not yet full, but there was coming a day where he will send them into land to wipe them out. This list is this list of the Nephilim clans these are from the days of noah these are those who who desire to call themselves god of this earth and he's saying i'm going to take you in into these to these individuals who worship these angels who have come down and call themselves god and they're not and that's who these these clans and, and what was born out of just kind of their their culture and their worship of these gods and that is who he's speaking against and you see that if you want to make that connection, it's by the very next verse because what is he talking about? You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars again this goes back to the very first commandment of having no other gods before him in the presence of him again if you remember that's how the book of the covenant as we just have gone through it bookends it all has to do with don't try and worship yahweh the way the pagans do and don't fall into their worship because as you try and worship their way it was just full of immorality and eventually just bred chaos and destruction and god does not want that for his people Verse 25 says, So you shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water and I will take sickness away from the midst of you. No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. He's speaking here, it reminds us of like James chapter one, verse seventeen, where James tells us that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. It's the contrast, guys, and that's again that this language is intentional when he's talking about these clans of people. It is talking and it should draw that that the ancient Israelites at this time, when they hear these clans, their mind is drawn back to the days of Noah and the chaos that ensues there. And the death and destruction, and what he does is he counters that. He's saying their worship leads to this chaos, and the counter side is like, if you serve Yahweh, commit your life to him, is that what is born out of that? Is this description of this bread and water and this this uh, life that he's taking them as the opposite of what is the opposite of chaos? It was Eden. That takes you all the way back to Genesis. There was this chaos in the beginning that God made order out of and he made Eden and that is what he's again saying, I want to take you to that place and that's what, that's what I want to give you. Now, as a quick spoiler alert for the book of Joshua when we get there, this next section as we finish chapter 23 here, the entire verses from 27 to 33 it is actually a prophecy and a foreshadowing of exactly what's going to happen. God's going to say, hey, don't do this. And by the, if you follow it, it's, uh, it's exactly how it out. God's going to say, hey, this is what I'm going to do for you. Then he's going to give a warning and say, this is what happens if you fall into that warning. Again, just kind of for those who like to take notes, this section right here, it is literally a preview foreshadowing, but actually summarizes the entire book of Joshua. He says, I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Cainite, and the Hittite from before you. Now just real quick, you, know, you might hear that and go, wait, God's going to use bugs? And, and we just kind of, we can pass over that. There's a couple of different thoughts when people uh, go through that issue with the hornets. Go, well, what does that mean? Well, it means a couple of things. Either one, yeah, God's literally talking about he's going to use hornets. If you guys have ever here got stung by a wasp, it hurts, it hurts a lot. If any of you guys have played uh, Breath of the Wild, you know that one of the easiest things to do to scatter your enemies and get distracted, you shoot the beehive, it cracks open as the bees sting them. They're easy pickings for taking off. God is saying, the language allows for this that he literally is like, oh, I'm going to use hornets and I'm going to sweep through and I'm going to use these insects to just disperse and to, to cause chaos amongst your enemies and make them that much easier for you to take out. There's no reason to not go with that. That's what scripture allows for us to do. There is other thoughts there that what is it's it's kind of, again, metaphorical language for uh, armies. That's really kind of thrown aside. I I don't really go with that one. Uh, You're not gonna see that language really used anywhere else in scripture, so it doesn't really line up in that way. There's another thought. I tend to lean this way, is I let that verse about the hornets really inform what God is talking about when he says, I'm gonna send a fear before you. The language is also used, again, I say if you've ever been stung by a hornet, if you've ever been around, my daughter right now, she's, for some reason, scared to death of bees. I think it's because her grandmother has a horrible allergic reaction to it, to where she gets stung by a hornet, she literally has to get an EpiPen because she'll have stroke like things, and well, even in the last couple weeks, that happened, and my daughter sees that, and it kind of, so there's just the Buzzing can send someone to, even my mother-in-law, it kind of, what is that noise? It's, there's a fear there. The, the, the language of the hornet is, is, is basically, it's God saying, I'm gonna send a fear. It's like a, a, a buzzing madness. It's not even just like, it's not even just like, God saying, oh, I'm gonna make them scared. It's gonna go, they're gonna be out of their minds, Terrified. And the reason I, I lean this way is, in fact, when we talk about the book of Joshua, is that is exactly what we find out happens when the spies get into the very first stronghold in the promised land that they come to in the city of Jericho. And they come to uh, a harlot named Rahab, and she says this in Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 I know that Yahweh, I know that the Lord has given you the land. That the terror of you has fallen on us. The terror of you has fallen on us, and all the inhabitants of the land are faint hearted because of you. So, by the time they get to this promised land, as God is now telling them here in Exodus 23, I'm going to have gone before you, and the people are going to be terrified of you, that they are going to be faint hearted. It is as if there has been a buzz in their ear. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth below. So again, as God... Is giving this language of this horn, it's this fear before them. We find out that's exactly what happens by the time you get to the book of Joshua. As they're entering into the land, he has already put that buzz in their ear and their hearts have melted. They don't even want to have this fight. Verse 29, he says, I will not drive them out, oh, uh, sorry, I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you. Until you have increased and you inherit the land, and I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the uh, from the Red Sea to the Sea of Philistia, and from the desert to the river. Uh, again, for for you to take notes. Unfortunately, Israel will never take that full boundary, the boundary that God gives them as their inheritance. He says, "Hey, this is the land I'm going to establish for you. This is what I'm going to give you." And the nation of Israel will never reach these bounds. The promise was given, but they will never fully inherit that full promise. And this is just a reminder for us that God's promises, they're so much bigger than our obedience. And that God's desire to bless them and you is only limited by your faithful obedience to him. He continues on saying, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out from before you. Again, as God has been uh, taking the ancient readers' minds to these days of Noah, to these, uh, these giant clans, these Nephilim clans. I think it's very appropriate as we see this and God saying, look, I'm gonna go before you, I'm gonna fight for you. As we think of one of the, the most notable battles against a giant that we can have is David verse Goliath in First Samuel chapter 17 verse 47, standing before this Philistine, in the land of Philistia. David stands before him and says this, then all the assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with the sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. This is something David understood is the promises that God was giving his people as they entered into that promised land as David would then face off against again these Nephilim, this giant of a man and he says, it's not going to be with the sword and the spear. God's gone before me. It's his battle. Again, as we continue out, it says that you shall make no covenant with them, nor their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Again, just summing up, go through, back, as we get through the book of Joshua, we're going to see, in fact, as God says, this is what I'm going to do for you. This is the promise I have for you. But know that if, you, if you're disobedient and you serve their gods, that it's going to be a snare to you. And we're going to see by the time we get to this exactly what happens. So now as we move to Exodus chapter 24, I'm going to take a quick, just kind of jump back. I want to read for you Exodus chapter 12, oh sorry, Exodus chapter three, verses 12 and and 18. It says, so he said, I will certainly be with you and and shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So again, if you guys remember that, we're talking about going back To the Mount Sinai, the burning bush, when Moses is talking to God through the burning bush, and God says, This is going to be proof of my word. That when you actually get the people out of the land of Egypt, you're going to come back to this very mountain, and you guys are going to worship. And in fact, if you remember, that was what Moses kept telling Pharaoh they wanted to do because God had commanded in Exodus three eighteen, let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So if you guys remember that, go, go. I know it's been a while since we've been there, but all the way back in Exodus chapter three, God says, look, you're going to, here's the proof. You're going to come back to this mountain. You're going to worship me here with the entire congregation. He says, you're going to go into this three-day journey and you're going to have a sacrifice before me. And that's what they came to Pharaoh said, hey, let us go to worship our God. We're going to go three days into the wilderness. And that was what that whole thing was about before the Exodus. Exodus chapter 24 is that moment. They have now gone the three days into the wilderness. They are at Mount Sinai and Exodus 24 is when they finally have that sacrificial worship before God who had promised he would bring them to this place. So with that... Uh, Chapter 24, it says, Now he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Behu, the 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. Now we've seen this many times, so I'm just going to tell you between verses 2 and 3. This is not a new concept. As we have got to Mount Sinai, and we've been here for the last couple chapters, if you guys ever remember, man, Moses had like, quads of iron because this guy has been running up the mountain down the mountain up the mountain down the mountain so they're now at the mountain and God goes hey Remember, I told you you're going to worship me on this mountain. You guys are going to sacrifice more. Come up and I'm going to tell you exactly how I want that down. So Moses runs up. God's going to tell him, okay, this is how the worship goes down. And that was all between verses two and three. Moses says, now ran back down the mountain and he's telling the people. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words of the Lord, he said, we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. I want you guys to, again, kind of take a note of that. The 12 pillars stand as representatives to the 12 tribes, okay? I think it's going to make sense a little bit later, and hold on to that. Verse 5, "'Then he sent young men of the children of Israel "'who offered burnt offerings "'and sacrificed peace offerings of the oxen to the Lord. "'And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, "'and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar.'" Then he took the book of the covenant, again what we've been studying through Exodus 20 through 23:19, and read in the hearing of the people. So again, they've made this altar. They have the sacrifices. He takes half the blood from the sacrifices, and he puts it in a basin, and then he stands before them, and what you guys have just been going through, Exodus chapter 20, 18 through 23:19, he reads before the people. It says that Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on The people. Okay, so this is why. This is one of those moments where people are going to be like, wait, this just sounds gross. What are we talking about? So he takes the blood. He sprinkles on the altar. I get that. We're going to see that later in Leviticus. And you see it in other places. Okay, the blood upon the altar. But then he, there's supposed to be like millions of people out there. There, There's like a whole nation... I mean, it's not like he's got a fire hydrant hose of blood that he's squirting over the people. Is he just kind of taking it, and it's like a 90% hit where he's just kind of going, and you get blood, and you get blood, and those guys in the back are like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not getting hit with that nasty stuff. Or, remember the 12 pillars represent the 12 tribes, is that after he takes that blood, instead of trying to do a Gallagher moment of splash zone of blood... He takes the blood and pours it upon the 12 pillars to signify the blood has covered all people. So again, that's that's, that's my opinion. There's, there's some that feel that way. Uh, I used to have in my head that it was the Gallagher splash zone and the guy in the back, you know, the little boy's like, whoo, I'm glad I didn't get sprinkled blood on me. Or there was a guy in the back, you know, who knows, if you guys ever go to those shows or concert, you want to be in the splash zone. Maybe the guy's in the back like, oh man, I wish I would have got that. I don't think it's actually as weird as all that. I think it's actually very understandable that you had the 12 pillars standing before and Moses isn't Gallagher in it. He's taken it and pointed on the 12 pillars, signifying as a representative to all the people that all of the people will covered. There's not the guy in the back who goes, oh, I guess I I'm not part of the covenant. I didn't get the blood on me. Nope, the pillars have been covered. All the people are covered under this. And it is this, he says, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all then Moses went up, also, <clears throat> went up also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders, and they saw the God of Israel. And for some of you who read that verse, you might have in the back of your mind go, wait a tick. What do you mean they saw the God of Israel? I think we have a contradiction here in scripture because Exodus chapter 33 verse 20 says, but he said, you cannot see my face, nor no man shall see me and live. Didn't? What do you mean they saw God? Isn't God going to say in a couple chapters later that you can't see God and live? Oh, that Bible just riddled with contradictions. So much so, some people who struggle with that, even in the Septuagint translation, they, they so struggled with this that they tried to change the words to be like, well, they didn't see God. They saw the place where God was. Some people, they, they really struggle with this. They see that and they go, well, there's, God, there's, there's, there's a contradiction here because it says that they saw God of Israel and yet we see later that God says, you can't see my face and live. And what God said to them, which by the way, okay, we can get into some things and we'll get to in a little bit, but either you get specific and say, well, God said you can't see my face and live. Because we're gonna see later that Moses was able to see some of God's glory without dying. But the word that when he says you cannot see my face, in Exodus chapter thirty-three is the Hebrew word uh, pani, not from Parks and Rec the city, different place. Not even a different place. It's it's a name pani, sounds the same, but what it means and where you guys have heard that before, you guys will think again takes us back to Genesis when it says in Genesis that Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. It is the it is the. The expanse. It is in in front of the the language of, of Pawnee also says that it is it's it's the when they look at something it, it's it's the the head of authority. It is not saying that right here in this moment when God said you can't see my face and they're saying oh, okay you can't lock eye to eye. It's saying that you cannot see God in His full expression of who He is. You cannot be in the fullness of His presence the way you are without dying. And the reason we say that, and the, I say, well, also you, there's some people who go with the language here. It says, they saw the God of Israel and that there was under his feet. So some people take this. I don't think you have to go there, but if people really want to try and go, go well, okay, well, the heavens have opened up and God said, you can't see my face, and there are mm-hmm. ten toesies and thighs of God standing there and they're like, whoa, that's the God of Israel. He's got some Crazy awesome calves. Good thing he didn't show our face because we die. You could go there if you wanted to. I do not believe that is what's happening here. Because the truth is, throughout Scripture, we've already seen this, that mankind has interacted with Yahweh in anthropomorphic form. That the word of the Lord, many times, is again, we see it as Yahweh in anthropomorphic. If you guys remember, even back when uh, Abraham had three visitors... It is God himself with two angels. And in fact, they they have a meal and and they talk with each other. You see this over and over again. You had Samuel, you had uh, Jacob where they were able to see God. But there is a way that God says, okay, you cannot see my, my, my expense. You cannot see my full presence. You cannot see my full headship and live. So God has made a way for us to be able to interact and that is through Yeshua. The word, so it is. My opinion, shared by many others, that who is standing on this mountain when they say we saw the God of Israel is this is yet again a moment where we're seeing Jesus Himself standing before the people, and we see this language that there was under His feet and it were a pave work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. Again, what they're seeing is going, man, we. God has come down, we've got the burning bush. And again, remember, even go back to the burning bush, the burning mountain, as we see that in the burning bush, you had Yahweh and the angel of the Lord spoke from it and he called it Elohim. And again, all of that is intentional. It's taking place on this mountain. And when it says they look and they saw the God of Israel, they are looking at Jesus. The very way each and every one of us are able to be and see God. When we understand, or we see this image, you see this mountain and it's on fire. It's billowing around. They come to the mountain and they they see the God of Israel. It's like, man, under his feet, it's it's like it's like heaven under his feet. The the lapis lazuli, the just the sapphires. There's all this heavenly imagery. As you take that, I want you guys. to to take that image and now transport yourself to the book of Matthew, chapter 17, verse one and two. As Jesus takes some of his disciples into sins, it says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. See, what the nation of Israel and Moses got to see on that mountain is what Jesus took James' And John, and took him up onto that mountain, and he basically again goes, I am the God of Israel. And he transfigures himself in the very image that they're seeing right here. And again, as you, as you see this, this language of, of Sapphire, and it says that, right, it says it was like heaven, the, the, the word here, this cosmological uh, this imagery, it's heaven. You're going to see that again represented in in the tabernacle and, and, in, the temp, and in the temple. And so I, I want you guys to understand where, where God is taking their minds to is that it's saying, the son Yahweh saves Yeshua. He's there before them, ushering them into his home. And something very interesting happens here because this is a moment where a, a lot of people will, will, will do this with scripture. They'll again they try and find contradictions or they go oh you're just repurposing uh, language a- around the time again it's so funny to me because um, actually again it was Amber who I think gave this commentary once uh, I don't think it was one of her family members and it's just stuck with me uh, as someone in a bank who when they're trying to uh learn counterfeit. They don't have them study all the counterfeits. They have them study the real deal. When you, know, when you know what a real bill is supposed to look like, the counterfeits jump out to you. The point is not to learn all the variant truths out there. It's to know the truth, because when you know the truth, all the falsities jump out. And so, yeah, you're going to have in other world religions who were taking from God, and as we've been going through Exodus, he's, he's been trying to pull all that back to himself. But there's something very interesting here because there's language used here of, of other religions to describe their God's dwelling place. And so there's, there's some similarities. But the contrast is so very important. I think it's fine to go with. Let's look at the languages, look at the imagery. What are they trying to describe? But the contrast can also be so informative. Because in contrast to all those other religions, is God's home, men were not allowed. And in, in their description of God's heaven, when they worship their gods, it's, oh, see, the imagery is the same. And God's invoking that imagery. Go, yes, it is my dwelling place. But in these other religions, it was, stay out, you inferior. And what is happening on this mountain is God is invoking the imagery of his home and who he is. This very next verse, but on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God and they ate and drank. That God has brought them and showing them this is my my presence. I want to invite you into my presence. I want to invite you to my home. For what? To have a meal. To sit down and enjoy yourselves. Again, when we think about when he said to, to take their shoes off they're on holy ground. He is saying, Just kick off your shoes, relax, enjoy meal. The the complete contrast is that all of this imagery, all that God is doing is to stand on who he is. He is Yahweh, he is God creator and he is inviting them by the blood covenant to be in his home, his dwelling place and just spend time with him. You know, I think that's where we have verses like Revelation chapter three, verse 20, where it says, here I stand. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Verse 12 of chapter 24 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain, be there, and I will give you the tablets of stone and the law and the commandments which I have written that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up to the mountain and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and her are with you. If any man has difficulty, let him go then. Then Moses went up to the mountain and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Just as we read about Jesus on his Mount of Transfiguration. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, interesting language here, again, for you guys, note takers, is 40 days, 40 nights, that, that Moses is he's up on this mountain, 40 days and 40 nights. Again, purposeful. As we go back to the days where God wiped out the Nephilim and poured out his presence for 40 days and 40 nights. After Jesus was baptized, Pastor Jeff is teaching about it this morning, he would then be taken by the Spirit into the desert where he would be out there 40 days and 40 nights. By Acts chapter one, verse three, something else interesting we find out, from cross to ascension, after Jesus went to the cross to when he would ascend back into heaven was 40 days. And so again, all of this, purposeful to let us understand something Jesus is God and we are not and if we actually believe that and understand what that means what that should do to our soul and how that should shake us that Jesus is God, Yahweh who saves who has come to cleanse you to sustain you and to bring you into his dwelling place as we end this morning I just want to I want to share with you guys a, a video, and I'm, I'm going to preface it real quick. Um, is this gentleman here, you guys may have seen before? He's not a believer. His name's Jordan Peterson. He's a psychologist, not a believer. And he's going to have a discussion with somebody. And I read for you guys a verse, and as we saw here again, Yahweh who saves, Yeshua, Jesus, before making himself known, drawing his people in. As we read in Revelation, that he stands at the door and knocks and whoever answers that, he'll he'll come in and be with him. And this to me, this, this clip, this is about a month old. Very smart guy. About a month old and he's having a discussion and to me, if you guys have ever, okay, what does that mean? Jesus stands at the door and knocks. You want to see a genuine moment where God is knocking on someone's heart. They don't even realize it, but it moves them. I just... We're we're going to show this clip and then we'll we'll close out this morning. Go for it.
2: So okay, so you can think about Christ from a psychological perspective, and the the critic, the critic, my critic, this particular critic that I've been reading, said, well, that that doesn't differentiate Christ much from a whole sequence of dying and resurrecting mythological gods, and of course, people have made that claim. In comparative religion, Joseph Campbell did that, and Jung to a lesser degree, I would say, but Campbell did that. But the difference, and C.S. Lewis pointed this out as well, the difference between those mythological gods and Christ was that there's a, there's a representation of, there's a historical representation of his, of, of his existence as well. Now, you can debate whether or not that's genuine, You can debate about whether or not he actually lived and whether there's credible objective evidence for that, but it doesn't matter in some sense because this, well, it does, but there's a sense in which it doesn't matter because there's still a historical story. And so what you have in the figure of Christ is an actual person who actually lived plus a myth. And in some sense, Christ is the union of those two things. The problem is, is I probably believe that, but I don't okay. know, I don't, I'm amazed at my own belief and I don't understand it. Like, because I've seen, sometimes the objective world and the narrative world touch, you know, that's union synchronicity. And I've seen that many times in my own life. And so in some sense, I believe it's undeniable. You know, we have a narrative sense of the world. For me, that's been the world of morality. That's the world that tells us how to act. It's real. Like, we treat it like it's real. It's not the objective world. But the narrative and the objective world touch. And the ultimate example of that, in principle, is supposed to be Christ. But I don't know what to... um, That seems to me oddly plausible. Yeah. But well, I still don't know what to make of it. It's too, partly because it's too terrifying a reality to fully believe. I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it.
0: If you believed in the story of Christ or if you believed that history and, and let's
2: say, the narrative make meat? Let's both, say. I yeah. think. I think you, because when you believe that, you buy both those stories. You believe that yeah. the narrative and the objective can actually touch
0: Thanks, bud. So I just wanted to share that with you guys. Um, simply because I, I saw that. I, I've seen a couple of this guy's videos, including one where a couple years ago he was at a conference and someone asked this philosophical question. He says, yeah, I had this dream. In my dream, I'm at a church and there's a, there's a graveyard of all these graves and out of these graves start popping up all these kings. This same gentleman was talking about this a couple years ago non-believer, believes in morality, but doesn't know if he believes in Christ. And as he's talking about this, and, and all these great kings start popping out of this grave, uh, out of their graves, and he's, he's like, in my dream, I remember thinking, well, what's going to stop all these kings from just trying to kill each other? So Something amazing happened. One by one, they all began to take a knee to the image of Jesus Christ. And he finds himself going, and I'm not sure what they're like... But, if you've, you want to know what it looks like, that God is, I mean, by dreams, God, he's still doing that, talking to this man, and here's this guy. This was last month. This was a month ago, this psychologist, and, and I want to show you that because it's not one of these, oh, and, and you know, I know what to do with it, I've given my life over, but this is, a, this is a man when you just see God knocking on his heart, and, and he said something so profound that I think every single one of us in this room needs to challenge ourselves. He says, it's terrifying to think, What would that mean if you really believe that? What would it mean if we really believe and claimed and lived by that Jesus is God of the universe, holding all things together, that he is the establisher of all that is good and right, and he gave his life for every single one of you, also that he can invite you by the covenant of blood into his home, to just be with him, to spend eternity with him. And so, I just wanted us to to kind of leave with that: is this, is Christ knocking at your heart? Maybe you are like this guy. I don't know what to do with that. I just want to. If you guys have have felt that knock and you're in his place where you don't know, please come talk with me, or Amber, or Anthony. Jonathan, Jason, come ask us. We'd love to talk with you guys. All right? So with that, let's pray, guys, and we'll close out tonight. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time in your word.
1: The Cover to Cover series is part of No Mere Mortal. The No Mere Mortal ethos derives from the biblically grounded and inspired work of C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. You can find more No Mere Mortal content, including the Cover to Cover series, on our website at nomeremortal.org. Follow us on Twitter, Truth, Facebook, YouTube, Rumble, and most major podcasting services. Subscribe, follow, like, comment, leave a review, and share. The music we've heard has been provided by Sicko. That's C-I-K-K-0. And you can find him at YouTube at suck 797 My name is Bryce, and you are no mere mortal.